0: This morning our, our message comes from Matthew 26, 26 to 29, Matthew 26, breaking of bread. Last week we, we started our Lenten series, The Sounds of the Passion. We took a look at Judas and at the clinking of coins and this week we're going to take a look at Jesus, his disciples and their last supper together. This is the time when When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper or communion, as we often refer to it today. A bit ahead of our verses, a a few of the disciples asked Jesus where they would be eating Passover. He sent them to a certain man and to tell him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did, and, and they prepared the Passover in the home of this certain man. It is during this dinner that we come to our passage this morning. Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. We read the word of the Lord. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word today, and that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Praise in your name. Amen. So do we have any readers with us today? Like, like books, I love books, but, but I'm, I'm a little picky and that it it pretty much has to be fiction. (laughs) Like I I really struggle with nonfiction. Like it takes me a little while to get through a nonfiction book. I got to read a couple chapters at a time and then, and then I got to take a little break because it's, I don't know. it's, It's not that it's boring. It's not that it's not good. There's a lot of really good, like edifying nonfiction books out there. I really love a good fiction, man. I, I love a good story. I love a good mystery in particular. Uh, a, a, good, a good story, but, but a good mystery is great. You know, I mean, books is one thing. They got them in the movies and that kind of thing too, right? You can, you can get good movies these days with, with a good story. But one of the things that makes like a, a mystery, for me anyway, in particular, really fun is, is the foreshadowing. I love foreshadowing, right? Where they tell you a little bit of something that's going to apply later, but you don't really know how it applies, and you don't even know that that's what's going to apply later most of the time. If the author's really good, you don't know what's going to apply. But if they're good, they they can set you up, right? So that when it comes, you're like, oh my word, how did I not see this? How did I not know that this was the killer, or this was the person that stole the artifact, or whatever it may be, right? Like, how did I not know this is great? There's some great... Foreshadowing here. I, I have a little little bone to pick with Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if you ever read those when you were a kid. Zero foreshadowing whatsoever. So he like he gets to the end and he's like, Oh yeah, I knew how it was because of all of this st-. I used to get so mad. So I, I didn't I did not read Sherlock Holmes as a child because there was no foreshadowing I, I didn't have any opportunity to try and guess what was going on. He he pulled his solution out of some I don't know, bank of knowledge that he had from way before that I was not privy to. So I had no, anyway, a little bone to pick with Sherlock Holmes. But foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. God is a master storyteller. He is so good at foreshadowing. He's so good at giving us something in the past that's gonna relate to something that's gonna be happening in the future. And our passage today is an excellent example of this so to truly understand what is going on in this passage we need to back up we need to go back we need to take a look at the at the foreshadowing back to the second book of the bible back to the book of exodus so in exodus the hebrew people the israelites they're in captivity in egypt how they got there is another story from their time but at this point in time they are in captivity in egypt and, and they don't like it. Bad things are happening. And, and so God sends Moses back to, to the people in Egypt to set them free. And, it's, time, and now it's, it's kind of an interesting situation because basically Moses goes in to the guy who's got all the slave power, this, this, all these slaves, all the slave labor. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, can you let my people go? Meanwhile, Moses is a convicted, like, murderer, right? Like, he left because they were chasing him because he killed a dude. But he comes back. I gets the statute of limitations had, had passed or something. But he's able to come back, and he stands before Pharaoh, and he says, Let my people go. Pharaoh says, Are you crazy? Let your people go? It's like free labor we got. They're, they're building our stuff. They're, they're doing our things. We're not going to just let these guys go. So then what happens? Plague. After plague, after plague, frogs, the the water turns to blood, fleas, locusts, darkness, all of these plagues affect affect the the Egyptians, and then some of them end up affecting the uh, the Israelites as well. God is saying, "Let my people go." And Pharaoh's like, "No, forget you. I'm not doing it. We're not we're not doing it until we get to the." F- final plague god's been beaten down on on pharaoh beaten down on the egyptians saying let my people go and he's like no you're crazy but he wears on him he wears on him and he wears on him if you don't let my people go this stuff isn't going to stop and then it comes to the 10th plague which you read in exodus chapter 12 verses 21 to 27 well this is this is preparation for that plague. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. They don't know what the Passover is at this point. They've never had a Passover, but apparently now they have a Passover lamb. They're like, Okay, well, we're not sure exactly where you're going here, but okay. We've got a Passover lamb now. And then take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. So take the blood of this land that you're sacrificing and, and mark the sides of your doors and the top of your door with that blood. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. So you will continue to do this. This is something we do tonight. And this is something you do into perpetuity. Just keep doing it. This is something, this this is a new institute. Do it. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt and he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses and the people lowered their heads and worshiped. That night, things went exactly as God told Moses they would go. The angel of death Passed over the houses of Israel, the houses that had the blood on the doorposts and above on the lintel. But he did not pass over those that were not marked by the blood of the sacrifice. There was a great cry in Egypt that night, for there was not a house that did not experience death. From Pharaoh, who lost his son, to the prisoners in the dungeons, everyone experienced loss. Even the livestock were not spared. God is complete in his judgment. He is complete in his judgment and in his promises. And it was this final act of judgment that set the Hebrews free. Because of this act of God, Pharaoh released them he said, enough is enough. Just go, get out of here. Get out of here. And they followed Moses out of slavery of Egypt and into the wilderness. The Passover meal. So how is this foreshadowing? How is this giving a look ahead at what is to come? Well, let's, let's jump ahead and, and take a look at, at, at the, the text today and then take a look at the context. So we're going to go forward through time from Old Testament to the New Testament, from Exodus 12 back up to Matthew 26. The Israelites and the Jewish people, they're no longer in slavery, right? They're not in slavery anymore. They are also not completely independent, as they are under the Roman rule, under the authority of Rome, but they're not slaves. Or are they? We're going to take a look into a discussion that Jesus had with with some of the Jewish leaders at the time and it takes place in John chapter 8 verse 34. John 8:34 reads uh, yeah, John 8:34. So 31 through 34. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, "If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." They answered him, "We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free?" Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The Jewish leaders are proud of their heritage. We are the children of Abraham, they say. And they continually refer back to Abraham as their source of salvation, as their source of security. Because of the covenant that God made with Abraham, they take refuge in that promise without realizing that God was talking of a spiritual bloodline and not the physical bloodline. So when they point to Abraham, they're saying, we're related to that guy, so hey man, we're good. We're good. How dare you question us? Attached to this blood relation to Abraham comes an ignorant sort of confidence in that they believe that they will be slaves to no one. Now, they're conveniently forgetting those many years in Egypt as, as well as time in Babylon during the exile. But, but they're, they're ignoring that. And, and they ask Jesus, how can we be set free? Because we currently are free and have for a very long time been free. So how can you be setting us free? How does Jesus respond? Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin, who lives in sin, who is intentionally committing sin, is a slave to sin. We live in a time when slavery is understood as a bad and a terrible thing. And we live in a country that has had our own sordid and, and shameful past consider, or concerning slavery. And in some ways, we're still dealing with the repercussions of that past, though we have sought to distance ourselves from it. Slavery is a terrible thing. All people, men and women, are created in the image of God, as we read in Genesis one twenty seven. All people have worth. No one is more important than the other. So no one should be forced to serve another. Man was not made for slavery. That was not God's intent. And yet, here we are. Despite that we have railed against the chains, here we are, slaves to sin, just as helpless as the people of Israel in Egypt they needed divine intervention to escape their slavery. Back in Egypt, they needed divine intervention to, save, to escape their slavery. And so do we. So do we. So back to the foreshadowing, Jesus has made it clear that in sin we are slaves, just as the people of Egypt were slaves. So let's get back to the text. The disciples are with Jesus. They're eating the Passover meal together. The meal that they eat in remembrance of how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And then then Jesus throws a curveball. None of the disciples knew what was coming. One one had an idea, that would be Judas, who would betray Jesus this, this very night. But even Judas did not foresee or understand all that would happen to Jesus in the next 24 hours. To them, this was just another Passover meal with their rabbi. They had been doing it continually. They had been continuing to celebrate the Passover. And this was just another another Passover meal with their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord. And they're a group of guys who are pretty friendly. I mean, they're pretty familiar with each other. They've been together for three years now, traveling with Jesus, walking with him, talking with him, sailing with him. These were brothers now in in faith, but also in relationship. You even... you ever get together for meals with people that you know well? With people you enjoy being around? With, with friends, with brothers or sisters that, that share a common goal, common interests? Are those quiet times? When we break bread together, are, are they times of quiet reservation? No, not... Not, not in my setting anyway, maybe I bring the noise, I don't know, but, but not, in, not in this setting. I mean, this past Wednesday we got together and shared a meal as a church body and it was not quiet. It was great. Conversations and, and, and just talking, people hanging out, spending time, fellowshipping with each other. It's not necessarily a, a quiet time. I can't remember a time when eating dinner at my house was a quiet affair. There's always noise, laughter, most likely at some point in time, some crying. Maybe it's over the fact that we're, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're not having dessert for dinner or, or possibly because we're not allowing Legos at the table. But, but there's noise, man. There, there are signs of life, sounds of people enjoying each other or at least interacting with each other. There was a time when, when having a meal together was referred to as breaking bread. Let's... Break bread together. Let's go get something to eat. Breaking bread with friends, with family, with with brothers in arms. This is not a quiet thing. And so they're they're breaking bread and then Jesus throws a curveball. He does something different. He changes tradition. They've been having this meal for years. Generations and then Jesus changes course. What they would do is is they would save a piece of the lamb that had been roasted, the sacrificial lamb that, that was killed. And then and then they would they would eat it, and they would roast it. And when that last morsel of lamb was eaten, well, it, it would go to the head of the house. The last last morsel of ro- lamb the the head of the house would eat it. The last bite And then when he had eaten it, that would signify that the Passover meal was completed and the night was over. But Jesus changes the tune. Before the last piece of lamb can be eaten, he interjects and steers the course of the night into a different direction. He picks up a piece of bread and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took his cup of wine and he gave it to his disciples, these friends, his followers. And he said, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The disciples could not have known what was going on here. They didn't know what was going to happen in the next 24 hours. They couldn't have imagined it. They couldn't have realized that Jesus was talking about his own death. That when he broke the bread, he was talking about the actual breaking of his body. And when he referred to the wine, he was talking about his blood that would soon be poured out, that would soon be shed for their sins, for our sins, for your sins, for my sins. This is the loudest Breaking of bread in history. This breaking of bread was Christ breaking himself. Breaking his flesh for us on the cross. This breaking of bread is a sound that is echoed throughout the ages. Calling people to repentance. Calling people to belief. In the Old Testament, in the Exodus of the Israelites from Egypt... The genesis of that exodus, the reason it could take place was because the people of God were spared for they were marked by the blood of the lamb. Their doors were marked by the sacrificial blood of a lamb and death passed over that house. God made them a promise. that if they were marked by the blood, they would be safe. It was a promise. It was looking forward to the time when that promise would be fulfilled. So promises work, right? We make a promise, and it's for a time forward. I promise that I will do this. I promise that this will happen. It's looking forward. And Jesus came to fulfill that promise. As Lenski writes in his commentary on Matthew, the old covenant could be written in animal blood because it consisted of promise. The New Testament, so the the testament of Jesus, the testament that he was to that promise, could be written only in the blood of the Son of God because it conveys the complete fulfillment of the promise. The actual purchase of redemption. The actual purchase of, Of redemption. In Exodus, we had the giving of the promise. And here in Matthew, we have the testament to that promise, the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus said, For this is my blood of the covenant, of the promise that God made to you which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the promise. This is the blood that was promised. God has fulfilled his promise in me, says Jesus. And if you are covered by this blood, then your sins are forgiven. If you are covered by my blood, marked by my blood, then death passes over you. Then death passes over you. Not physical death. Physical death is one thing we can all be certain of. All men die. No, the blood of Jesus saves us from spiritual death. From an eternity of suffering apart from God. For in Christ we have died with Christ to sin. For in Christ we have died with Christ to sin. As we read earlier today in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. Now if we have died with Christ. No, for, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death of He died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is some pretty profound stuff. This is a big deal. In our baptism, so in faith, we are united to Christ united to Christ tied to him we see this also in galatians chapter 3 verse 27 where we read for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ so when he died to sin we died to sin and since he now lives because of his resurrection in him we live because of his resurrection we have put on Christ in faith we have tied ourselves We have tied our lives and our deaths to Christ. Because of the blood of Jesus, because of the blood of Jesus, those who believe, those who trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross will be passed over by the angel of death. They will spend eternity with God in heaven. Because of Jesus, we are no longer slaves to sin. The breaking of the bread, the breaking of his body on the cross what a sound! A sound of pain, of anguish, of forgiveness, of love, of freedom, a freedom that rings into eternity. Praise God for His unending love and mercy and the grace that He so freely bestows upon us. And that because of Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection and our participation through faith in those events, the angel of death has passed over us. Because of the breaking of the bread and the pouring out of the wine, our sins have been forgiven, and the angel of death has passed over us. Now, praise be to God. Amen.